This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Church, while you're standing, go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word and turn to the New Testament book of First Timothy and just a brief portion of Scripture. This morning, as we finish up our series in this letter of Paul's to the pastor of Ephesus, Timothy. My name is David Tarkington. I am the pastor here and thankful to be able to serve you this morning and bring God's word. And thank you again for all who have joined us here in person and those online as well. So um, I'm getting a bit of an echo. I don't know why, probably because I like to hear my own voice. And so it just keeps coming back to me. So uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to sell their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The letter of uh, this pastor, of the apostle to the pastor, the letter from Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Pastor Timothy comes to a close. At least this first letter does here. And it's an interesting uh, closure of the letter because it seems and appears to be a postscript. As you look through this, and those of you obviously recognize this as we spoke of it last Sunday, the previous verses end with a doxology and an amen. So it looks like it's over. And yet it's as if Paul maybe was thinking, oh yeah, one other thing. And he kind of adds this in here. But Here's the truth. We know that God did not say, oh yeah, I almost forgot. God didn't forget anything. And yet here's a thought. Here's a closing word. If you want to call it a postscript, you may. The the truths that are given in this letter, the truths that are given in God's word in this letter and throughout the New Testament and the entirety of the scripture and the canon that we have is relevant for the first century church. It remains relevant for the church in this century as well. I had a great opportunity to, to lead a breakout session yesterday at our Baptist Collegiate Ministries uh, annual weekend in St. Augustine. I mean, literally hundreds of college students from all the colleges and universities in the BCMs, the Baptist, Baptist Collegiate Ministry groups in our state, gathered together for worship. There's, there's, there's one thing that'll make you feel really young, and that's hanging out with a bunch of college students. There's one thing that'll make you feel really old, that's hanging out with a bunch of college students. So, so you know, I, I'm hanging out with them, and, I'm, I'm, and we're for a day and had some incredible conversations and a great and, and beautiful and sweet time of worship together. But as we began talking about current church structures and things that are going on in Christianity and theology and doctrine and all those things that are important, it, it's very clear, it echoes what we said yesterday, that Progressive theology, however that may be defined in our culture today, is not biblically affirmed. Rather, God-breathed truth, proper orthodoxy, and good doctrine, good teaching is. I began that session, I said, you know, to these college students, I said, here's the the lens you must look through before we start addressing all the cultural issues, because that was my breakout session, is that lens of theology, 
Now, I'll just tell you, uh, you know, up front, they say, hey, we're going to have a, have a class on doctrine and theology and right teaching, and that does not market well to the current tickled ears of American Christians. I'd rather have five points on how to have a better marriage than have good doctrine. I'd rather have, can you help me be a better person and a good neighbor than let's get deep into the Word of God. But I did apologize to the students, not just for every Christian in America. I just apologized. I said, here's what I think we've wrongly done over the years, and I'll own this, is that we have abandoned, not intentionally, but a deep teaching for children and teenagers, and we're trying to rectify that even here. A deep teaching that gets below the surface level, that, that no longer affirms verses taken out of context to build a weekend around or get a t-shirt logo for or to get an event built upon. I think we have harmed a generation. And now we're trying to reclaim them knowing that perhaps some of them are, are not going to be reclaimed. It's a, it's a dangerous reality, but I am encouraged because as you and I are likely watching across our nation now, it seems like there is a generation of young adults who are hungering for the truth who are gathering for worship, regardless of the analysis that may be coming out from different venues, there is definitely a hunger for a relationship and a walk with the Lord. And I'm thankful for that. And I pray that it would become and could become and may become a version of another awakening that we need. And so as I proclaimed to the young adults yesterday, progressive theology is an empty reality I was encouraged with the heads nodding, going, yeah, we've been there, we see that, and that's why we're here today. When we gather for the, on the Lord's Day to worship in such a way as we are this morning, we are wanting to give you good doctrine, godly teaching, truth, with no mix for, for error at all. The church exists for the glory of God. We do know this. We may not believe it, but we know it in our head. Next Sunday, we're, we're finishing up 1 Timothy today. We have a one Sunday, kind of a unique service next Sunday. I'm going to be preaching the first part of the service. So, uh, you know, we're not starting with music. We're starting with a sermon. So that's going to throw everybody off because by the time we get through with a sermon, you're going to close your Bibles and think you're getting an early lunch. Time out. No, you're not. Because then we're going to worship through song together after the sermon portion. And then Mike, uh, Pastor Mike's going to come and preach another sermon. It's a two-for-one deal. It's like a buy one, get one. It's incredible. Uh, we might take four offerings just to make up for it. It'll be unbelievable. <laughs> but we're focusing on the, the, the reality of biblical membership. I had a young lady, I'll just tell you this. This is, this is not in my notes, and now we're going long. She stayed after the conference yesterday to ask me questions about my topic, and my topic is not the point. But then she said, well, you know, I'm really not in a church right now. I'm not a church. I, I'm, I'm in this ministry, this collegiate ministry. You know, we just kind of gather in a coffee shop every so often and have a Bible study. And she told me about her background, her family, and their church upbringing and all this. She was in a church. And she, she said, so, so what do you think about that? I mean, I'm not in a church right now. And I said, you're not new to the area. I said, you need to understand this. From, from, I've met you. I'm not your pastor. I wouldn't be your pastor. You live on the other side of the state. You're six hours away from me. Let me just tell you, as lovingly and as caring as I can, a Christian who is not a member of a local body of believers is living in sin. She goes, why do you say that? I said, you can download our sermon next Sunday and we'll tell you why. <laughs> but there are a whole lot of misunderstandings about what local church membership is that are propagated by good, faithful members of 
a local church such as ours. And then there are biblical understandings of what church membership is. And to willingly push that aside is as sinful as anything else that is outside the will of God. So we will discuss that and I said, you have no pastor, you have no shepherd, you have no structure, and you have no place for the fulfillment of all the one another's in the New Testament as it is defined in the scripture, not by my polity, but by the scripture's delineation of that. So for me to tell you, your Bible study is great and your friends are wonderful, but that's not church. You need a local church. She wrote it down, said, you know, you're right. I was very encouraged because I thought, oh, she's gonna push back. She goes, no, I've been feeling that, I know that, God's been leading me that way. That's just one thing we're looking at next week. Why does that matter? Because that's all what 1 Timothy is about. It's about a local church under the shepherding of a, of a pastor God has ordained and placed there with leaders within the body, elders and deacons and others who are focused upon glorifying God and being the church God has created them to be. This is why we don't get to finish 1 Timothy, check it off the box and go, okay, we fixed that one. This is a perpetual readjustment of our understanding of faithfulness to the Lord and his local church. You see, nobody is a pastor of the universal church other than Christ. And you might be a member of the universal church, but you're really not if you're not faithful in the local. That's just kind of how this works. So as you read this letter of 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or all the letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the Corinthians, all of those New Testament letters, those are letters written to local bodies with the very intent to say, honor the God who exists and created you for his glory. And understand, here's something that, that just blows our mind. None of us have a right to be a member of a local church. Let that sink in, because in America, that's a really hard statement to make. We love our rights. But we don't have a right to be a member of the local church, but we have been invited by God to be part of his family. And that is a great gift. Thanks be to God that he made a way for us to be redeemed and part of his family. Thus, he made the church. And this is truly good news. So as we look at this and we close this series, we look at this letter and we are reminded that the instructions that Paul gave to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus at this time were very clearly on how to live holy lives, truthful lives, and to actually experience the abundance that Christ promised within the confines of the one another's of loving our Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and truly loving our neighbors as ourselves. The teaching is offered, and it's a how-to in a way. The church is in the first century heard this. Here's the reality. Timothy got the letter. The church heard the letter. The Lord wrote the letter through the pen of Paul. So the church heard the letter. Whether they believed it or not is up for discussion. The church of this century reads the letter, hears the letter. Whether we believe it enough to surrender fully is the question. The truth that is throughout our lives is that we are given biblical instructions. The biggest tension within each of us is understanding the fullness of the truth of the word of God, and I'm talking about getting beyond token verses that look good on t-shirts and magnets, and understanding the context of the fullness of the word of God, believing that God has placed it there 
for his glory and for our flourishing so that we may know rightly what it means to live a gospel-focused, scripture-centered life and see that as beautiful and the gift that it is. Throughout our lives, we're given these instructions. And eventually, as we know, because we have the fullness of Scripture before us, eventually every human being will know that this is true. Every human being eventually will know that the Word of God and the plan of salvation and the personhood of Christ and the fullness of the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is true. Everyone's going to know, but let me just say this. Lovingly and in care, it is better to believe fully sooner than later. It is better to get it now as the gift it is than to get it later as the reality of the judgment that becomes. Paul goes back to addressing a certain group in the church. I find this interesting. It's like Paul finished the letter and it's like, amen, doxology, here's the letter, fold it up. Oh, by the way, scribe, I want to say some more things about rich people. So then he goes there. It's like, wow, I don't know, maybe, he, maybe somebody, he remembered something about someone in the church. Let's talk about these rich people getting into heaven. I mean, there's this whole rich person construct here. There is a lot in scripture about the wealthy, by the way. There's the rich young ruler that Jesus told, hey, in order to be obedient, sell everything you have and follow me. And the rich young ruler said, I like my stuff more than you. It was a good idea at the time, but I'm going to stick with my stuff. And he walked away from Christ. And then there's uh, the warning about rich people, how hard it is to get into heaven. It's that whole camel and the eye of a needle thing. And what has led Christians for centuries to debate, is it a real needle? Is it a, is it a gate? Is it this? You know how we can get lost in the we don't care and it really doesn't matter conversations? I think the point is, it's difficult. But we'll spend a six months on studying the size of a camel and a gate called eye of the needle. And God's going, ah, great exercise in missing the point. Here we go. It's difficult. Jesus gives the warning about trying to serve two masters and how it's impossible. Then he states that the two masters he speaks of are God and money. Warnings throughout scripture to the wealthy regarding their handling of wealth, their drive for more wealth, the way it pulls from true worship and how what the world says is, actually, is good may actually be bad. That's the scripture, right? Yet, here's another reality. There are wealthy people, from an earthly perspective, in scripture who feared God and sought to follow him. I mean, there are. I mean, you, you can't ignore the fact that there's a guy named Abraham in the Old Testament. He had a lot of stuff eventually. People just kept giving him animals and things. You know, he just kept gathering them. Then there's Solomon. Eh, maybe not perfect in a lot of ways, obviously. But he had a lot of wealth. David. You also have the New Testament era here, and you have uh, Paul who, now you're going, Paul? Paul wasn't really rich. No, but, but, but as you read the New Testament and the book of Acts especially, you will discover how he benefited from the generosity of those who had been blessed with wealth, providing a place for him to stay, making sure he had food, buying tents they didn't need. I guess, I just presumed that, but you know. But yet there's a warning here. Now, I doubt that many of us today are going to be motivated by a listing of those who gained much in the world but lost the most valuable things. It's not really hard to pick out losers who are rich. The history books are full of them. 
You can look up lottery winners and treasure finders and inheritance gainers and read any other such biography and the history books are overflowing with those kind of examples. And yet while we have seen the story play out over and over, many still find themselves pursuing that which they know will ultimately not bring peace. I mean, at least they should know. Yet wealth and riches are not necessarily sinful. Otherwise, godly examples in Scripture and throughout church history would not exist. From the Old Testament characters to Baron von Zinzendorf and others throughout history, I mean, you can, you can Google believers who were generous in their living and their giving, and God had blessed greatly. None of them, by the way, are celebrity pastors who are preaching a prosperity gospel, in case you were confused about that. None of them had private jets and, and watches that cost more than your houses. I'm just saying. I looked it up. It doesn't exist. But let's look at the church. For the church, this reminder is very real. Why? Because even as Christians, we are a gathering of redeemed, forgetful people. That's why we keep coming back every week. That's why you'll say, didn't you preach this last time? Every week, it's the same sermon, usually, right? Eventually, because we are so forgetful. A gathering of Christians can experience collective amnesia when it comes to the truth of God's word. Look at the church in Laodicea. That's an old, a New Testament church. It's referenced in the book of, of Revelation. It was a church, which means it had a local body of believers that gathered with a pastor who led them, and yet what we know about the church in Laodicea and how it's identified in Scripture and throughout history and for our teaching purposes and understanding, it is a church known to be lukewarm. It's the lukewarm, vomit-inducing church. I just woke up the eight-year-old that wanted to hear the word vomit in church right there. <laughs> That's what it says. But we must not miss that it was a church with members in it, had a pastor, those that called themselves brothers and sisters who gathered weekly, if not daily, for communion, fellowship, worship, and the teaching. But somewhere along the line, collective amnesia impacted the church of Laodicea, and they forgot the fullness of the teaching of God and who he truly is. They believed that a lie was true. They began to think more highly of themselves. They were forsaking what it meant to be the church of the living God. They were a local expression of the bride of Christ who began to cheat on the bridegroom, but justified it and amended it and amended one another to death. Revelation chapter 3 says so in verse 17. For I say to you, I am rich. For you say, I'm sorry, for you say, talking to the church, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may, be, may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It's simple. Christ is saying, you're telling everybody you're rich because you paid off your building and you've got some money in the bank and you're able to do some things, but you're not. You may have more money and possessions than another, but if you love money and your love of money drives you and your love of wealth and possessions drives you, you're dead on the inside, church. Now, you read that and you think it's a message to an organization, but the church is a living organism, so it's a message to the individuals. Because the church doesn't think the way it thinks unless the people within the church think the way they think. 
A church doesn't behave the way it behaves unless the people that call themselves a church behave that way. It's a little different than just a club, right? It's an organ, organism, a living organism. The church in Laodicea was arrogant, they were selfish, they were prideful, and they believed themselves better than others. Nothing new here. This is human nature 101. And it's not that having money is a sin, and yet Paul says it is a huge warning. Be very, very careful what drives you. This is what some in the Ephesian church were drifting toward, apparently. The church apparently had some wealthy individuals in their congregation. I mean, it's, I don't know their names, but Paul did and Timothy did. They had everybody in that congregation. They had wealthy, they had poor. They had masters, they had slaves. They had men, they had women. They had boys, they had girls. They had super smart people and people that weren't getting straight A's in their report cards. Then you had people that were arrogant and people that were humble. I mean, you had all these people that were part of the local body in Ephesus. But Ephesus the warning that Paul gave, was becoming Laodicea. Unless they stopped. And any church can become Laodicea. Unless it repents. And turns the other way. So God leads Paul to close this letter with a final warning to the wealthy. There is the illusion of wealth. Wealth can create an illusion. That's, what's happened. That's what happened in Laodicea. That's what was happening in Ephesus. They thought, uh, the Laodiceans thought that because they were comfortable, they were good. But in their comfort, they were missing the true riches God desired to bestow. They were missing the gift by presuming what they had was the, was the gift. Have you ever just stepped back to consider the American evangelical subculture that we find ourselves in today? Now there's Christianity, then there's American Christianity. And then there's, within American Christianity, there are different lanes. There is evangelicalism, there's Baptist, there's Presbyterian, there's Methodist. I mean, there's all these little lanes. Everybody has, and we usually try to figure out what box we can put people in. But there is this uh, vibe that kind of is resonating among American evangelicalism. It's this versa-day doctrine. It's the screaming pastor that is the celebrity in and of himself saying spiritual stuff and even saying Christian-sounding things while their Grammy Award-winning worship team has a concert. What's happening to the church? As Christians, we are the Lord's sheep, but many seem to be more like those animals that jump off cliffs or the ones that follow a Pied Piper the Pied Piper who preaches but offers spoiled milk instead of gospel meat in their messages. It is frustrating because I've had people ask, are you, are you concerned about the state of the church in America? I'm, 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 no, not really. I mean, I think, you know, Everything has a season and a lot of that stuff that's out there that's all over the place and people are listening to and downloading and buying books of their celebrity preacher. It's going to disappear. It comes and goes. It's a fad. And I know you're going, I can't believe you said that. Well, let let me say it again. It's a fad, just in case you didn't catch that. Fads come and go, and versions of Christianity have come and gone, but I am not worried Because there was this moment in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus sat with his disciples in a synagogue next to an open cave where pagan worship was going on, and Jesus and the men had a conversation. And this cave, known to the locals as the gates of hell, became the illustration that 
Jesus used when talking to Peter, especially in the others, and, and he declared that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So pop culture versions of Christianity will disappear, but the church of Jesus Christ will remain steadfast. That's why I'm really not worried. What I'm more worried about are steadfast churches trying to put on the trappings of pop culture Christianity, thinking that's life. So what's going to happen eventually? Well, some mega groups will be shut down, some celebrity pastors will fall off their pedestals, and some truly painful and sad things will take place in the name of Jesus even, falsely. But the church will prevail. Thus we have the postscript. Paul says, hey, all of you, don't forget. This world is corrupt, and the bait that has caught so many remains tempting. But don't buy the lie. To the rich and the wannabe rich, to the young people, you know, I've talked to students, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an influencer. That was never said when I was a kid. I want to have a YouTube channel. I want to be an influencer. I want to be a Kardashian. I want to be, you know, a TikTok champion or whatever. I don't know. I was going to do a dance, but I'm not. (laughs) That's not everybody, but there's this shift in that. To the rich and the want to be rich and the want to be influencers, the illusion is drawing many. So let Christ change your mind, your heart, your motives, your attitudes. You know, that's what he says, to renew your mind daily. We don't talk about that enough in church. We talk about giving your heart to Jesus, which is good. But what are you thinking on every day? Renew your mind daily. Surrender and live. There is an illusion of wealth that is often partnered with the delusion of an empty life. The lies from the liar lead to a false understanding of life. The illusion leads to a delusion, so to speak. As my ninth grade language arts teacher would say every day, and I hated when she said it, but it still rings in my head, a word to the wise is sufficient. I didn't even know what that meant. I wasn't wise, apparently. She was saying, if you're wise and you listen, then I only really need to tell you once. The word of the wise is sufficient. Paul's words here to this church he loved dearly was clear. A word of the wise is sufficient. His instruction from God was unapologetic. Life in Christ leads to changes in living. Total surrender is what Christ is calling for in each of us. You know, I know some of you have asked, what about this revival in Kentucky? I mean, I hope it's revival. I'm not here. I'm not a revival analyzer. That's not, I didn't get a degree in that. So, But I do know this, that for generations we have sought to have our fish cleaned before we catch them. So we have turned Christianity and America and evangelicalism and even in the camp life and event life that I've done, it's almost this uh, get your act together, then come to church rather than come to Jesus and let him get your act together. You know, we kind of get it backwards sometimes. I know we don't have cabooses on trains anymore, but so often we wanted to put the caboose in front of the engine. Total surrender is what Christ is calling for. It's what Paul is declaring here because he is pushing against the false teachers and the heretics and the empty knowledge holders. John Calvin said the heart is a factory of idols. Truth is we're continually fighting to shut that factory down. That's the principle spoken of here. We talked about this yesterday in our conference, so here's the question, what's the most important thing in your life? We talked about one of the things that's infecting 
our understanding of identity in the church today, especially among young people. And, and there were multiple things we touched on, but one thing was a, was a you know how Christ said that a tree that produces bad fruit should be cut down? Well, this is a bad fruit tree. It's the tree of the idolatry of romance. It is, the, uh, it is revealed, and that's just one idol, but the idolatry of romance is defined as, and you know you're, you're, you're kind of bowing down to it if you've ever grown up in a subculture that says, hey, you've been single long enough, why aren't you married? And the idolatry of romance is fueled by Hallmark movies and The Bachelor and Bachelorette. I, I'm just telling you, it's an empty and false narrative of love. And people are hungering for that. It's, the it's evidenced in the teenage girl that can't have an identity unless she has a boyfriend the entirety of her, her junior high and high school career. And thus she has like eight. And just keeps trading them in for a better model. <laughs> the idolatry of romance is just one element. But what is your idol? Maybe it's not romance. But it could be your marriage. We talked about that for single adults, it is a struggle for a single adult faithful follower of Jesus to find a place in the local body of believers. In a church that elevates marriage to cult-like status, it is really difficult for someone called to singleness to celebrate that. And you know, you look in scripture and go, well, Jesus was single, I guess it was okay. Um, Paul was likely single, I guess that's okay. But the modern evangelical world says if you're single for a certain amount of time, what's wrong with you? So we've missed on that. There's the idols of relationships. There's the idol of your spouse, of your job, of your money, of your house, of your kids, of your grandkids. What's most important? You, don't, you say, well, my kids and my grandchildren, they're not my idols. Let me ask you this question. If God calls your grandchildren to go to a country we can't, we can't say publicly to serve him faithfully, see, that's where it really gets challenging. I'd love for my, someone else's grandkids to be on mission, but I'd like for mine to be within driving distance for holidays. What's your idol? It's a simple question, it's a simple equation. That which is most important to you sits on the throne of your heart. Thus anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ that drives you, motivates you, fulfills you, legitimizes you is your idol. Thus we sing, behold our God, high and lifted up. We either mean it or we don't. Because that's the only one who should be seated upon the throne. Paul is warning in this reality what's going to happen. Here's a truth that's coming. God will shut down the idol factories if and only when we totally surrender to him. He gives us eyes to see how he sees. He gives us ears to discern truth. As Paul warned in the final verses regarding the false knowledge and biblical truth, he will say, what is true will resonate, you will discern it, you will know it, you will hear that which is untrue, and a red flag will come up, and you go, I don't think that's right. The church in Ephesus was continually having to hear this message, to relearn truth, to check themselves. So too must we. Christ changes everything. Christ creates generous hearts. You talk about, is it a sin to have money? No, but it's a sin to keep it all and to not live generously. Now, does it mean give it all away? That's what he told the rich young ruler, only because he knew the rich young ruler loved his money more than God. 
It's amazing how those that don't love their money more than God actually end up keeping more of it, but they're also giving more away. God always blesses. He creates generous hearts in the lives of his people, so the attitude of haughtiness that Paul warned about does not occur. God is not calling everyone to move to a commune and become a, uh, join, a, join a, 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 a communist share everything group. I mean, that's kind of a weird concept with a distribution of wealth developed by some government structure, but he is calling every Christian to live generously, not storing up treasures on earth, but sending it ahead onto eternity. How? Well, by giving, by giving to missions, by funding ministries that preach and teach the gospel, by feeding the hungry and giving clean water in the name of Jesus Christ to those who are thirsty, by seeing others. I don't want to do my whole conference, but it's fresh on my mind. We start identifying sins, and then if we're not careful, we start seeing people as their chosen sin. Here's where we miss the second part of the great commandment. Second part of the great commandment. Great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second part, love your neighbor as yourself. Once we start viewing people as projects, we no longer see them as image bearers of God. To view a person as an image bearer does not excuse their sin, nor does it affirm it. But to see them as a project turns them into something dehumanized and less than human. That's who I'm working on. You know how you can work on someone? By loving them as you love yourself. And some will say, well, if you don't affirm my belief system and my attractions and my identity, then you don't love me. Sorry, you're wrong. I can love you and not affirm anything you do, just like God loved me and did not approve of my sin. Love and affirmation are not synonyms. And I think we miss this, and when we start seeing people as projects, we say, hey, we need to reach that neighborhood and get those people. Well, yeah, okay, I get that. But are they people, or are they just names on a target? Projects, that's not what we're called to do. So we can kill some idols in our lives, we can destroy those idol factories and allow God to do that when we start seeing others as souls destined for eternity somewhere. So church, First Baptist Church, as Paul finished his letter to us, May we worship well. May we pray deeply. May we hunger for sound doctrine and holy orthodoxy. And may we see Christ celebrated and see his kingdom grow. Paul closed the letter to Timothy this way. So too I close this sermon. Grace be to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time together we have had to gather in your name. May we be the church that keeps things in order, that we remember the truth of the word of God, that we don't find ourselves falling into the trap of looking what someone else is doing in another city or down the street in another gathering and just copying it because it seemingly works. Keep drawing us back to your word and to your truth and to that which never changes. When fads fade away, may your church remain. When celebrities fall off their pedestals, may your word be declared fully and continually. When music styles shift, may our worship remain sweet and as a sweet offering to you. 
Do that which you have been doing in this church since its founding over 100 years ago. But help us to realize you're not finished with us. So change us. Convict us. Make us into the faithful family you desire us to be for your glory and for all our good. For those in the room today who have yet to say yes to you, may this be seen as a moment, Spirit of God, where you draw them to yourself for salvation's purpose and that born-again reality. For believers who, like me, get stuck in the rut of routine, may we have a fresh experience with you each time we gather, but especially this time. Grace, grace, undeserved goodness. Thank you for that. May it be for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.